welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. This morning, I want to begin a new series um, that I have called Hot Potatoes from 1 Corinthians. Um, I'm sure that most of you or many of you at least will have heard of the phrase hot potatoes or hot potato. We might have heard someone say, I dropped him or her like a hot potato. Or people sometimes say it's, it's a real political hot potato. Um, the term apparently um, originated in the mid-1800s and it alluded to the fact that cooked potatoes retain a significant amount of heat after cooking because of their high moisture content and because of their thick skins. And handling them after the cooking process, of course, was somewhat of a challenge. Some of you may recall in your childhood wrapping potatoes in tin foil and putting them in a barbecue or a bonfire and cooking them in the coals of the open fire. And when you pull them out, um, throwing them hand to hand, trying to cool them down, uh, and if they don't, throwing them to a friend or soon to become an ex-friend to see if he could cool them down. Metaphorically speaking then, the term hot potato came to refer to a situation that is difficult, controversial, unpleasant, awkward, or perhaps embarrassing to deal with, something that we would much rather sidestep than try and tackle. And 1 Corinthians is an epistle that has a number of issues that qualify both in the time that Paul wrote the epistle and even now as metaphorical hot potatoes. And what I plan to do over the next few weeks is to briefly look at some of them. Uh, Over the years, I've often heard believers talking um, about how life would be so much better if only we could recover the conditions of some previous era. You know, they talk about the Great Awakening or the Methodist Revival or the Welsh Revival and wax eloquent about how amazing it must have been. Even better, they say, imagine living in the time of the early church. And I often think it would be really interesting to engage these somewhat nostalgic saints and ask them which particular congregation they were thinking of being part of. Was it Ephesus, who had lost their first love? Was it Thyatira with its compromise? Was it Laodicea with its lukewarmness? Or perhaps, and most pastors here would say, God forbid, was it Corinth? Corinth was a church that had problems so deep and so wide that their very life and ministry was being threatened. If you've read the epistle, you'll know they were deeply divided. There was immorality of a kind that shocked even hardened pagans. There was litigation happening among and between the members of the congregation. Paul had to speak to them about idolatrous practices, and there was complete disorder, including drunkenness, in their public gatherings. And I want to say, any takers to go back to the early church? No. Well, yes and no. I know. I understand the sentiment. Um, What I want to do, as I say, is to talk about some of the issues that Paul had to talk to Corinth about, because I think some of them, excuse me, are at least applicable to where we live. Now, I'm not planning a systematic exposition of the epistle. What I hope to do is sort of pick out these hot potatoes and use the Corinthian correspondence as a kind of a leaping off point to discuss them, perhaps more widely than that specific passage might allow. 
I think over the next few weeks, if, uh, if you took time to read the first letter of Corinthians, it would be incredibly helpful. In this first talk, what I'd like to do is to introduce you to Corinth, to the Corinthians, and to Paul's correspondence to them. Who was Paul writing to? What was he writing to them about? And most importantly, what might that have to do with you and I? Now, by any measurement you like to use, Corinth was truly one of the great cities of the ancient Roman world. By Paul's time, it was well on the way to becoming the largest and most prosperous city in the region of Greece. It had probably somewhere in the vicinity of 80,000 inhabitants. It was a center of trade and industry. It was very, very famous for the manufacture of tin bronze, which was in fact called Corinthian bronze. It was also very famous for a biannual Isthmian Games. Now, the Isthmian Games were second in importance only to the Olympic Games, and athletes came from all over the Mediterranean world to compete in these biannual games. Paul's reference, by the way, in chapter 9, verse 24, to boxing matches and running races would have immediately resonated with the Corinthian readers. They understood about the games. Corinth was a port city with all that that implied, both then and even now. There was an abundance of soldiers and merchants and travelers away from the constraints of home with money and time on their hands. Austin Farrar said of Corinth that it was the vanity fair of the ancient world. It developed, with very good reason, a reputation for immorality and loose living. Um, in the Greek plays of the time, if ever a Corinthian came on stage, he was portrayed as being either drunk or lecherous or sometimes both. In fact, the Greeks coined a word, Corinthiadzo, and it literally meant to live like a Corinthian, and it referred to a life of drunken debauchery and excess. So this is the reputation of ancient Corinth. Ironically, given that reputation, it was also a center for religious pilgrimage. There were at least 26 known sacred places and sites around the city. In 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 5, Paul talks of many gods and many lords. And again, the Corinthians would have resonated. They understood exactly what he was talking about. Among the more famous uh, of these religious sites was the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love with her plus a thousand prostitutes who would come down and ply their trade in the city by night. No wonder that Paul felt the need to talk to the Corinthians about what real love was. There was the temple of Apollo, the god of prophecy. I'm sure that many of you have heard about the ancient oracle of Delphi that was located very near Corinth. It had passed its heyday by Paul's time, but was still operative. And again, as Paul begins to talk about prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, the Corinthians are resonating with this. They understand what prophecy is, at least in a pagan sense. They had also the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. There was the temple of Tyche. The, Tyche was supposedly the daughter of Aphrodite and Zeus, and she was the goddess of fate and luck. So the city was filled with many gods, many lords, many temples. Knowing, knowing the context to, 
of the city and the people to whom Paul is writing gives you some kind of insight in some of the language that Paul uses. He uses in 1 Corinthians a good deal of temple language, and he talks to the church about them being the temple of God. They understood temples. They understood this whole idea of eating meat that had been dedicated to idols, and Paul talks about that in chapter 8. They, they understood spirit-led manifestations of prophecy and healing. Paul talks to that in chapters 12 and 14 and gives a distinctly Christian perspective. And of course, with Aphrodite being in the city, the nature of real love in 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul speaks to. So there's a, that's a little about the context of the city. You can read the background to Paul's first visit to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. He founded the church at that time, which uh, historians tell us was probably AD 49-50. In the epistle, he speaks of planting the community in 1 Corinthians 3-6, laying its foundations in 1 Corinthians 3-10, and fathering the church in 1 Corinthians 4-15. So Paul was the person responsible for the birth of the church in Corinth. According to Acts chapter 18, he stayed in Corinth about 18 months, and the only place that he stayed longer than Corinth was Ephesus. In about AD 51, Paul left to continue his missionary journeys, and this particular letter was written about five years later, maybe somewhere in the vicinity of AD 54, 55. Paul has now been away from Corinth long enough for some serious problems to develop within the community. And so there had been this exchange of letters between Paul and the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is probably the third letter in this exchange. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my previous letter. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, he says, now getting down to the questions that you asked me in your letter. So there's this series of letters going back from Paul to the Corinthians and vice versa. When we read Corinthians, we're probably reading number three in the series, and we are literally reading somebody else's mail. It's a little bit like listening into one side of a telephone conversation, trying to join the dots. One of the challenges in studying this epistle is to try and reconstruct the dialogue. Who's, who's saying what? The ancient Greek manuscripts don't have punctuation, so there's no quotation marks. Now, there are clearly times in this epistle where Paul is quoting back to the Corinthians things that they have said in their letter to him. And he's repeating either their words or some of the proverbs that they have used as he seeks to answer the questions that they've raised. Now, if you aren't aware of that, when you read uh, these comments or those proverbs, you might think that they are Paul's views and that they are Paul's words. In fact, they aren't. They are the Corinthians' words to Paul. He's quoting them back to them as he's answering them and, in many cases, attempting to challenge them or even disprove them. So that makes this working through 1 Corinthians something of a, of a challenge. Of course, as you read 1 Corinthians, um, you, you have to wonder at places and times, what on earth does this have to do with us in the 21st century? I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is an extended discussion on whether it's permissible to eat meat bought in a marketplace that has previously been offered to idols. And you think that's hardly appropriate to you and I some 2,000 years later. 
As we read this letter and these ancient documents, what we do need to be uh, awake to, alert to, is discovering imaginative analogies between the world of the letter and the world that we inhabit, because they are there. I'm getting ahead of myself, but when we're talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 8, do we eat meat? Do we go to you know, um, meals with people who tell us that the meat has been offered to idols? What we're talking about effectively is how do we engage with the culture? How do we work with people round about us who are not Christians? And so there are imaginative analogies between Paul's world and between the world that you and I live in. You've got to remember, though it's not written to us, it is written for us. Um, it's helpful to understand, too, as you come to 1 Corinthians, that a bit of bad blood had developed between Paul and the community that he'd founded. And the relationship between them is clearly strained, although yet not in open hostility. They're at least still communicating by letter. But a decidedly anti-Pauline um, sentiment had developed obviously initiated by a few in the congregation, but it had begun to affect the wider community. And so a crisis of authority, in a sense, lies behind the letter. Paul's authority is being questioned and undermined by some in the community. By the way, that continues on into and climaxes into Corinthians. Now, these Corinthians are relatively new converts. Paul has been gone about five years. Many of the church, or much of the church, is made up of pagan, previously pagan people who have probably been only converted for some five years. And the massive task that Paul faces with this congregation is to try and reshape their thinking. And so his primary pastoral task is about the formation of the community. This letter has a corporate emphasis. Whether he's using temple language or body language, he isn't primarily focusing on them as individuals, but them as a community. And there's a constant call to understand their corporate existence as the church. So he's trying to shape their understanding so as to organize and nurture a faithful, godly community in this incredibly pagan city. When you and I come to the scriptures as 21st century Westerners, one of the incredibly difficult concepts for us to grasp and appreciate is this idea of corporateness. We have been shaped for nearly all of our lives, probably all of our lives, by a radically individualistic cultural milieu. And we simply don't understand the corporate nature of Scripture. So, for example, when Achan in Joshua, uh, in the book of Joshua, steals the, the, the gold and the Babylonian garment from a city that had been dedicated to be completely destroyed, when Achan is judged, his whole family is judged with him. And for you and I as Westerners, we, we grapple with that. How is it that his whole family gets judged on the basis of what this man has done? Why is it that the whole of Israel comes under judgment when David numbers them? Why doesn't God do things individually? Well, we have to understand, while our thinking is trained that way, um, it, it, the Scripture is not necessarily as individualistic as you and I are. It's a very difficult concept for us to grasp, and it's, and it's one thing that flows through Corinthians and that we will touch on and talk about. Paul faces this massive task 
of what social historians call resocialization. And it's not just the resocialization of these recently converted pagans, but of you and I who have been shaped and discipled by a particular way of thinking that is not necessarily the way that God thinks. So when he writes to the church in Rome, he talks about the need for their minds to be transformed in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. What he's seeking to do through his writings is to shape the moral imagination of these Gentile converts into patterns of life that are consonant with, that are in harmony with the, the ways of the God of Israel. He's trying to do the same to you and me. Richard B. Hayes speaks about Paul as seeking a conversion of the imagination. And in some ways, that's what we are seeking to look at as we come to this epistle, a conversion of the imagination, not just theirs, but ours too. And so through this epistle, Paul encourages them, invites them, and even commands them to begin to view the world in dramatically new ways in the light of the values that have been shaped by the new story that they have entered into through Jesus Christ. To believe the gospel story is an incredible challenge to culture, wherever you live, actually, but particularly to theirs and ours. To believe the gospel story is to find one's life reframed and one's basic questions reformulated. Now, many of the problems that that were occurring at Corinth were caused by the Corinthians' I guess, understandable tendency to think and act in ways that were entirely normal within the cultural world of the Greco-Roman city, but were no longer appropriate for the new culture and the new story that they had entered into in Christ. And you can see that we face exactly the same challenge. The understandable tendency to function in ways that are normal in our cultural world, but are not appropriate in terms of the new culture and the new story that we've entered into as we are committed to Christ. So Paul was saying to the Corinthians then and to us now, you have to understand the story that you are now called to live out of. And if the, if the idea of a story troubles you, then just simply change it to a worldview, all right? You have to understand the worldview that you now are in and are called to live out of. Story or worldview is the primary means by which a people's identity is formed. We call it narrative identity. For example, families are shaped by the stories that they generate, that they remember, and that they retell over and over again. And you've heard people, and they'll say something like, well, we're working class folk. That's all we can really expect. No one in our family has ever attended university. We're gasoline alley bread. That's all we'll ever be. And the retelling of that story creates an identity. Stories shape beliefs, expectations, behaviors. They create identity. Leonard Sweet says we have a storied identity. The stories that you believe may be the most important thing about you. In the Old Testament, Israel had been drawn into, by the grace of God, the story of God. And there are, through the Old Testament, multiple retellings of that story. 
There are numerous practices that God gave to these people designed to remind them of the story that they were now in. I'm not going to take time to read these passages. You might like to do it. But Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 5 through 10. Joshua 24, 2 through 4. Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. All of those passages are Israel's story being retold. Now, this isn't just, you know, a case of uh, of corporate dementia where they say the same things over and over and over again and nobody understands why and they go, oh, there he goes again. The idea is that you are embedded in this story. You know what story you are in and how you are called to live it out. Passover the practice of Passover was all about remembering the story. Every year they sat down and, and as part of the Passover celebration, the children would ask a question. What is this about? And the parents would retell the story. You are part of this story. Now, interestingly enough, when Paul talks about the Eucharist, when he talks about communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, this is about remembering. When we come round the table, it's about the remembrance of the story that we have been drawn into. You know, we sing that song, we live in remembrance. Now, that's not some nostalgia that, oh, yeah, we think back to, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened way back. That's to remind you that that back there has created something in the here and now that we live out of. And every time we partake, we are retelling the story and we are being called to remember and live out of it. You know, the tagline for the Museum of Jewish People in Tel Aviv is, you are part of the story. Perhaps the tagline for 1 Corinthians should be, you are part of the story, now live out of it. Live like it. And Paul, as you read 1 Corinthians, is constantly saying to them, this is what you once were. You were pagans back there, but something has transpired. Now, this is who you are. This is the new story you have been grafted into Live, live like it. So for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul has given this list of, of failures and sins, and he says, and such were some of you, Corinthians. You, you lived in that. That was a description of you. But now, or you are washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is what you once were, but you're, you're in a new story now. You've undergone a complete change. Now, part of the agony of Paul over the Corinthians is that they are not being who they rightfully are. They are not living out of and consistent with the new story and new status that Jesus created for them through the work of the cross. And he's saying to them, you're fighting with one another. You're taking one another to court. You're still being sexually immoral. You are disorderly and drunk at the public gatherings. How is this any different from the culture that surrounds you? How can I tell the difference between you and the Corinthians? What story are you being shaped by? Henri Nouns once said, from the moment we claim the truth of being in the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. It's a powerful and profound quote. 
part of what the gospel story is about is calling us to live out of the new identity that the story has bestowed on us. Identity is tied to story and actions flow from identity. Every action that we take in life has a sense of identity behind it. How we see ourselves matters. So Paul begins the epistle by outlining this new story initiated by Jesus and what it means for them and for us. Let me just read to you, I'm not going to break this down in any depth, but let me just read to you the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. From Paul, chosen by God to be Jesus Christ's missionary and from brother Sosthenes, to the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, invited by God to be his people and made acceptable to him by Christ Jesus, and to all Christians everywhere, whoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and theirs. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you all of his blessings and great peace of heart and mind. I can never stop thanking God for all the wonderful gifts he has given you now that you are Christ's. He has enriched your whole life. He has helped you speak out for him and has given you a full understanding of the truth. What I told you Christ could do for you has happened. Now you have every grace and blessing. Every spiritual gift and power for doing his will are yours during the time of waiting for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he guarantees right up to the end that you will be counted free from all sin and guilt on that day when he returns. God will surely do this for you, for he always does just what he says. And he is the one who invited you into this wonderful friendship with his son, even Christ our Lord. My goodness, you can go through that word by word and the things that we have been given as we have been called into this new story is nothing short of earth-shaking. Obviously not doing it in detail, but number one, these people are much beloved. Though that word is not used by Paul in this particular passage, it is used elsewhere throughout the epistle and often in introducing other epistles. He says, beloved of God. People, we are the ones that are loved by God. Then in verse 1, we are chosen. Verse 2, we are invited to be God's people. We have been made acceptable through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, verse 2 says. Jesus' death, by the way, on the cross and his subsequent resurrection are the linchpin of this whole story. He said it might be a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, but that cross... That resurrection marked God's promised intervention into this age to finish it and to start a new one. Then he says, you've been gifted in verse 4. You've been enriched in verse 5. You've been blessed in verse 7. And we could go on and on. This is the new identity that the story has created. And so the rest of the epistle is, you should live out of that story. This has been given to you. This is your new identity. Now, be who you are. Most of Paul's epistles, by the way, and especially this one, deal with what the new story has created in terms of our identity, and then is a call for the followers of Jesus to reimagine life as they know it, to live out of that new story. So Paul's epistles often have what we call a doctrinal section and a practical section. This is who you are. This is how you're to live. This is the new identity. Now, out of that, the ethics flow. What you need to know is followed by what you need to do. And it, friends, it's vital that we understand that actions are meant to flow from identity and not vice versa. It is not the actions that create the identity as much as it is 
the identity is the fountainhead for what is to flow from us. So in Scripture, there's a distinction, and I don't mean to confuse you here, but there's a distinction between what we call indicatives and imperatives. So indicatives are something indicated. They are something that, are, that is declared about you as a fact. An imperative is something that we're supposed to do, a command or a direction that is given. The distinction, while it might seem academic to you, is incredibly important. In Scripture, every imperative, every command is based on and flows from an indicative, something that has been declared about you. You are never asked to do anything without first being told who you are and what God has done to make that possible. If you don't understand the indicative, if you don't understand the truth declaration about who you are, and you just see the imperatives, the commands, you'll be crushed by them. You know, you think of the greatest list of rules in the whole of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Do this, do this, don't do that. Most of them are don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. These are the imperatives. But they start off like this. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am Jehovah your God who liberated you from slavery in Egypt, from your slavery in Egypt. And in, in essence, in the light of that reality, who you now are and who you are now related to, this is how you, you, you're to live. This is your identity. You are Jehovah's people. You are the redeemed people. You've, been, you've had slavery broken from you. Now in the light of that indicative, these are the imperatives. Live like this. Be who you are. Because of the indicative declaration, live like this with regard the imperatives. This is who you are. Therefore, live in this manner. Friends, if we don't understand that and we simply try and live gospel commands, we'll be crushed. I think it was John Bunyan who once commented in a, in a kind of a little verse. He said, run, John, run, says the law, and gives me neither hands nor feet. Fly, says the gospel, and bestows on me wings. That's the difference. It's not run, John, run, with neither hands nor feet. This is who you are. You've got wings. You can fly. Use them. Is effectively what Paul's trying to say to them and through them to you and I. Gospel indicatives sustain gospel imperatives. You can't simply say to a people, live like this, without gracing them, enabling them to do that. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, listen, you are beloved. You've been chosen. You are God's people. The cross is effective in your lives. You've been enriched. You've been gifted. All spiritual blessings are yours. Now, out of that, with those wings, fly. Who we are is the basis for how we act. You know, the contrast between God's ways and our ways are stark. Our paradigm is, I'm loved because... And many of us have been raised like that. Many of us have been in families where we felt that our 
performance really was the basis for our acceptance. Our status depended on how we acted and how we performed. And we felt like we were loved if we produced. And so what we do is we transfer that onto our relationship with God. He loves me because, well, I I keep the rules. I I have a regular quiet time. I try as best I'm able to um, live a godly life. I go to church. I tithe. I try and share the gospel with my neighbors. I'm loved because. But listen, God's paradigm isn't I am loved because. It is I am loved therefore. Huge difference. I'm saved. I'm accepted. I'm, I'm the beloved of God. Those things are indicatives. They are true of you. They are true of me. And we live out of them. I am loved, therefore, I might go to church. I might tithe. I might share the gospel with my neighbors. I do those things not for acceptance, but out of a place of acceptance. Not for identity, but because of my identity. There's a huge difference. This is about, this is what 1 Corinthians is about. Paul's trying to say to these people, you're not living out of your identity. I look at you and I can't see any difference between you and your neighbors. Listen, if the only difference between you and your neighbors is that at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning you disappear from your house for two hours and then come back, then I'm sorry. It's not, it's not enough. It doesn't, it doesn't distinguish you. They might just think you're weird. You know? Paul's saying to the Corinthians, I, I, I need, I, because of who you are, you should be radically different. You've been given wings that you're not using. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, a theologian, he was speaking to preachers here, and he said this. He said, so often in our preaching, our indicatives, that's the truths, are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives, the commands. And so our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's backs because we've looked at the New Testament, and that's all we ourselves have seen. We've seen our own failure, and we've seen the commands, the imperatives, and we've lost sight of the great indicatives, the declarations of the gospel that sustain those imperatives. I'm loved, therefore, not I'm loved because. Undergirding Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians is this desire for them to understand their new identity. And he's saying, once you've grasped this, this will change your life. You have been grafted into and embedded in another story that's very different from the pagan story that surrounds you in Corinth. You will be different because of it. You know, in ancient Rome, it was said of the pagans that they were promiscuous with their bodies and stingy with their money. The the Christians came along, and those who lived out of that story changed something so that they said of the Christians, they are promiscuous with with their money, but are stingy with their bodies. There was something about their sexual ethic and their incredible generosity that stood in stark relief to the culture that they were raised in. I I don't know about you, but I find that unbelievably challenging to me. What is it about my life that makes it stand out to such a degree that the pagans look and go, what on earth is that about? Why would he do that? Why would they do that? Why would they be so generous with their money? Why would they be so stingy with their sexual capacities, as it were, limiting it to just their spouse? What, what in a culture like ours, as 
unraveling as it seems to be. You know, and, and I, you know, I see lots of Christians throwing up their hands and, or, or wringing them and saying, the whole place is going down the gurgler. And I, and I understand that and share something of that sympathy. However, I, I do think that as the world is getting darker and darker and darker, the Christian church has the possibility of actually being completely different, so countercultural that people will turn and go, what? Because at the moment, you know that they don't. Lots of Christians think that the world is against us. They're not necessarily against us. They just don't even care about us. They're completely indifferent to us because we don't stand out. We don't do anything that are different. They, they see lots of things that we say people shouldn't do, but they don't see anything of the identity and the behavior that, that God calls us into that stands out as light and darkness. I find Corinthians an incredible challenge. Paul is inviting them and through them us to enter wholeheartedly and live out of a new story. Can I have the musicians come? 1 Corinthians is Paul saying, Corinthians, this is who you are. At present, you are not reflecting that reality. I am calling you to live out of who you are. And I suspect if the Western church were to get a letter from Paul it might say something very, very similar. Believers in the West, this is not who you are called to be. You are called to live out of an identity that is very different from the culture around about you. You've been given wings. Start to fly. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.